Sal Berry. The NHL magically finds all these votes. And Tim Parrish. And I'm not angry or salty or a grudge-holding person. <clears throat> yeah, right. This is the Puck Junk Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Puck Junk Hockey Podcast. I'm Sal Barry, and with me is Tim Parrish. And today we're going to talk about the 2021-22 Skybox Metal Universe Hockey Card Set. We're also going to talk about some NHL topics, including the new coach in Vancouver and the new All-Star Reverse Retro jerseys for the upcoming All-Star Game. Tim, how are you, man? I'm good. Yeah, I heard you had a little plumbing project. I always have some project going on. We got new countertops in all of our around all of our sinks. So they install the countertops, but they're not plumbers, so they don't do that. So ah. rather than hire one, we YouTubed it and did it ourselves. Yeah. Well it wasn't bad once we figured it out. <laughs> yeah. Well, nothing's bad once you figure it out. It's always the figuring out that's the bad part. We got it down to a science now. I replaced all the shutoff valves, the local shutoff valves on all the pipes, and placed all the drop, all the drop cabling for the water intakes and all that. So should be good to go for another twenty years. Great, and then uh, you, now you're on your way to freezing your backyard because you you already start to know some plumbing stuff. So maybe your next step then will be to uh, make some outdoor ice. I already have one. We can oh, skate yeah? on top of our pool. Really? Probably. It's covered in ice. <laughs> so I want to start with the coaching change in Vancouver because it was like hockey's worst kept secret for felt like a week, you know, pretty, pretty long. I don't know if it was five days or whatever. You know, it's like seeing the freight train coming and not being able to do anything about it. Just to give a quick recap. Bruce Boudreau, who was hired in December of 2021, is that about right? December yeah. of 21, yeah, he replaced yeah. Travis Green. Replaced Travis Green. So he was fired after 13 months, so he was just replaced by Rick Tockett, the same Rick Tockett that, you know, we grew up watching in the 80s and 90s and then watched on TNT on their Wednesday night hockey telecasts. So by Friday, everybody was talking about that. Like, it wasn't just like, there's a rumor. It's just like, yeah, the Canucks are expected to announce on Monday that Boudreaux's being fired. And, oh, yeah, it's Friday. So, man, could you imagine that? Like, you know you're going to lose your job in a couple of days and having to go in on the office on Monday. I think pretty much everybody agrees that the Canucks mishandled, well, two things. I mean, one, did they even give Boudreaux a fair chance? And two, was that the best way to handle it? Well, I can answer number two, and that's no. It was not. Look, the Canucks are a mess. They're just a complete mess. They're basically referring to them on all of Hockey Talk Radio and everything as the Canucks because they just blow everything up. Just the simple way that they handled the whole entire thing. You know, you bring Boudreaux in to replace Travis Green, who wasn't, you know, the team was off to a slow start once he, you know, was in there at that point in time. And what was Bruce's record? 32, 15, and 10, something like that at the end of the season from his okay. time taking over. So they narrowly missed the playoff spot. 
So it's like, I'm good. You know, here's a guy. You know, he brought a change. He's likable. The you know, the players like him. The fans like him. Things seem to work. Now they come out with you know, they got 39 points going into these games, well below where they were last year, and you know they're fighting for a playoff spot at this point. But just the way that they, just the way that they handled that. I mean, you essentially give zero confidence to a guy that's your coach. And all you can say in public, and I'm talking about Jim Rutherford, all you can say in public is, well, you know, Bruce is our coach right now. It's like you're showing, like, no support, not just for your coach, but for your team in general. You know, basically just saying we need to do something. And who in their right mind is going to look at that and be like, Wow, that's totally inspiring. I want to go be the leader of that team and fix whatever ails them. Well, apparently we find out, and it's Rick Tockett. But the thing about Tockett is he's been sitting on the sidelines since his last coaching gig, and he's wanted to go back into coaching. So I don't put any of this on Tockett at all because he got hired to do a job. That's it. So this has nothing to do with him. Now, whether he was Rutherford's guy in the beginning – or, you know, whether he was Patrick Alvin's guy when he got hired and brought in as the GM, I don't know. I don't know what talks were done. But if you remember a couple of weeks ago on the TNT broadcast, you know, they asked talks straight up about it. And he was just like, I haven't signed anything yet. But he said yet. So, you know, it was hinted that it was going to happen. But honestly, I don't think Boudreaux is the problem. I just think there's just too many distractions. They've had too many injury issues. They've they've just gone through a lot of crap. And I mean, their number one goalie, Thatcher Demko, has been out for a while. I mean, he's a big part of that team. And really, the guys that they've had fill in have not done all that great. They're hurting with injuries. And, you know, that starts with in net. I always feel for a coach when... They get hired mid-season, and then they get fired mid-season. It's like you never get a chance to really—you never really get a chance to coach. Like, yes, you get a chance to coach. Yes, you can affect change and stuff like that. But what I mean is, is like, if you're going to hire a coach, hire him at the damn start of the season. You know, this mid-season stuff is just bullshit. I'm sorry. It's like, I can understand if your team's a train wreck and you're like, okay— the coach has lost the room. We have to get a new coach in here because this team is a disaster. Then you have to do something. But when you hire a coach midway through the season, they don't even get that full season. They're kind of fixing somebody else's problem. And that's what Boudreaux was doing. He was cleaning up a mess that somebody else had made. Then he doesn't even get a full season to show what he could do. When you're hired midseason, you're fixing somebody else's mess. And then you get a season to show what you can do, and he didn't even get a full season. They really gave him, what, October, November, December, January, so half the season, almost. We talk about coaches being fired all the time, especially, you know, prematurely fired or at the end of the season, there's always the big exodus with, you know, Black Monday after everybody misses the playoffs, the ax starts to drop left and right. But we don't often see a guy that's like Bruce here. He's a hockey lifer, to use a phrase that's used a lot. I mean, he's been in the league basically forever. 
the guy is so personable. I've never met the guy, but I've seen him on so many interviews. And, you know, when he wasn't coaching, he was part of most of the panels on NHL Network, on the NHL Network radio broadcasts. He's done things for numerous channels that broadcast hockey. He's just got like a great personality. And he's, he seems like really easygoing, kind of like a happy guy. And he's already shown he's got track record of success. I mean, he's taken teams to the playoffs numerous times. Tons of respect across the league. And he's a huge WWE fan, too. He loves wrestling, if you didn't know that. But, you know, you talk all the time about this good old boys network, right? That there's this good old boys connection within the NHL that guys that are cut from the same cloth and come from the same organizational sets will tend to get lumped together because they bring their friends with them. I don't know if that's what happened here, but, I mean, if you look at it, Rutherford leaves the Penguins, decides, I'm going to retire, but then the only thing that could bring him out of retirement was going to the Canucks and taking that Canucks job as president of hockey ops. Then what does he do? He brings in assistant GM Patrick Alvin from the Penguins to be the GM. Now, you know, Boudreaux might not be Alvin's guy, so we want to replace him with? We'll replace him with Rick Tockett, also ex-assistant coach of the Penguins. So you got this Penguins connection there, which is kind of interesting. There might not be anything to it, but the optics of it certainly seem like there is. And let's not forget, Bruce Boudreaux's very first goal as a hockey player was scored against none other than Jimmy Rutherford. So maybe there's a grudge there. I'm just speculating, but that part's true. But the speculation part is speculation. <laughs> but he did he did actually score his first goal against Jim Rutherford when Rutherford was the goalie on Detroit. Back in the 70s, Boudreaux had to score his first goal against somebody. I mean, it wasn't going to be against Mike Richter or Patrick Waugh or... No, but there were tons of goalies <laughs> in the league, and it just so happened to be the one that just fired him. So, what is, I think, a funny coincidence. You know, nothing Boudreaux, to see here. Yeah, exactly. I find this kind of funny. Bruce Boudreaux played on the Chicago Blackhawks for seven games in 85 86. He had one goal, and he had two penalty minutes, and he was the plus one. And that was his sum career with the Blackhawks. I mean, he played 141 games in the NHL, but I find it funny that he's in, um, he's on the 85-86 team. And you know, it's funny because I collect Blackhawk team photos and I don't have an 85-86 photo. And I really want that one because it's the only full color picture of Boudreaux I can find in a Blackhawk jersey because he was in the team photo but I don't think he was in the team-issued set of postcards. And he has a picture in the team's 60th anniversary book, but it's a black-and-white photo. But I just think that's interesting. And he was like a Blackhawk, and that's kind of one of those things I've always been trying to find, like a photo of him as a Blackhawk, and that's just kind of hard to find. I've gone back and looked before just to see, like, what actual cards he has. And he only has two actual, like, major-issued cards. That was in 78, 79, 79, 80. Everything else after that were either team-issued postcards or um, like minor league AHL or IHL cards. And mm -hmm. Then later on, like in the modern era, I guess, he had some stuff come up 
with coaching cards for some of the AHL teams that he coached. And I think in the game, Heroes and Prospects at some point threw a couple cards of him in the 75th anniversary set. But other than that, he might be in the Toronto Maple Leaf Centennial set because I think that covered like everybody who was ever a Leaf. But other than that, said he's got those two cards from the late 70s and that's about it it's a very small list let's talk about the all-star jerseys because i saw those i thought they're pretty cool i there's things about them i like there's things about them i don't like i i like the colors i think i wish the trim colors were the base colors and vice versa that yeah, that would mean one would be powder blue and the other one would be that like pink color. I guess it's pink, not like a pink color. It's a pink it's, color. So we have it's hot pink. Okay, hot pink and powder blue. If you're gonna go Miami Vice, go Miami Vice all the way. Don't just like make it a black jersey with oh, but we put a little bit of pink and blue on the cuffs. Aren't we being edgy and retro? Because if you're going to go black and white, then you need to go with the old school 80s uniforms. The 90s all-star uniforms, you had, uh, was it like a dark teal and purple, right? It was blue and purple, but I'm, I'm trying to articulate. It wasn't quite shark's teal. It was kind of like a darker teal. Yeah. You know, obviously there have been various incarnations of the jerseys and the colors. But, you know, with this one, they threw it all the way back to 94. I mean, these basically look like the 94 jerseys. And I first thought it was fake because when I saw the leaked photos, did nobody zoom in onto these to see that they say NHL All-Star 1994 inside on the collar? But when the actual photos came out, they say the same thing. So it must be a retro design that they had made that's specifically to show that it's a throwback to that. The thing is, I don't think any of the players should be able to wear those jerseys without also wearing a pair of Armani pants and loafers with no socks, Hmm. because that's the only thing that would make sense to me. So when the players are showing up on the red carpet and walking in, I expect them all to be looking like Crockett or Tubbs. I like those 90s jerseys, but I guess that's just because I liked hockey in the 90s. So, I mean, again... I have a fondness for those 80s black and orange and white uniforms that were all-star jerseys. It made sense. They were the color of the NHL logo, so they pulled from those colors. And then when they switched from 94 to 97, when they switched to the one team wearing uh, teal and white and the other team wearing purple and black, I was just like, well, that's cool because it's the 90s and that that's where the colors really were headed. You know, if you think about all the team colors from the 90s, you know, you had the Sharks with their teal, you had the Ducks with their eggplant, you were getting all these like bold colors and bright colors. And, you know, you think about the color palette of the 90s. So yeah, it kind of made sense. And yeah, I get it. They're using those Miami Vice type colors. I think they're cool. I'd wear one. But then I say that about almost every All-Star jersey. I mean, some of the later ones I didn't really like, you know, from like the past 10 years. Like the ones yeah. where you can barely see the logo because it's almost the same color as the jersey? Yeah, those weren't really good. And I didn't like the ones that had like, I'm looking at the 2015 jersey right now, and it had like neon green. It's like black with neon green stripes. And then the white ones had neon green stripes. And I like neon green and I like black, but 
It doesn't look as cool as, say, like those Dallas Stars Mountain Dew-type jerseys, if you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, they're third jerseys. Yeah. I call those electric death. <laughs> when they did the, well, the teams are just going to wear their own logos, and we're just going to do all black and all white, and then just kind of ghost those logos. I guess that was okay, because then you could tell what team the player was on, but it also seemed kind of lazy. Well, Sidney Crosby's going to wear this black Penguins jersey with a black logo, and it's just like, okay. Like, not really. You should go to what, like, Major League Baseball did and just have the players wear their own jerseys. And that way you don't know who's on your team, and you're just passing to the wrong people, and it could be just a giant mess. No, because you have the half the guys wear their white jerseys and the other half the guys wear their dark jerseys, and it basically becomes a rat hockey game. It just becomes a giant pickup game, but of the best players in the world, where it's like... Isn't that what it's white... kind of already become? What? At this point, it's just a pickup game. I feel like that's what it's starting to become. I mean, you saw what they did to the Pro Bowl, right, for NFL? It's not a football game. It's flag football. That's fine. Like, Do you really want to get to see flag football? No, nobody wants to have a career-ending injury because of a Pro Bowl game. The only one that ever took a Pro Bowl seriously was Peyton Manning. And if okay. he's not playing, then nobody else needs to take it seriously either. So it's good to get voted. That's great. Most of these guys, I think, probably want to would rather have the weekend off. But I still think we need the All-Star game. I absolutely think we need it. I don't like the way the whole thing went down with voting, but we talked about that before. No, let's so. talk about that some more, because we were talking about the vote, but now the votes are in, and you have some things to say about that. It's kind of interesting that you had... So you have this public vote, right? And you're taking votes from you know, the general peons of society that can pick who they want to see in the All-Star game. I get it. I like that. I have... No problem with how they do that. And I'm not angry or salty or a grudge-holding person. <clears throat> yeah, right. But just the results, when they revealed them, it's kind of unfortunate because it appears to me like the NHL did some creative math to figure out who actually won. Because as you saw leading up to the votes, I mean, there are plenty of websites out there that use statistical analysis to figure out where people were percentage-wise in the overall vote tallies based off of summarizing how many votes people got, how much interest they got, how many votes were being cast, and all of that kind of stuff. But it certainly wasn't the NHL that was making that available like they have in the past. You used to see a little running clock. Oh, they have 80% of the vote. They have this many votes. They have that many votes. They didn't want to add all that out there. Ever since John Scott messed the whole thing up for Gary, he has since, what did I call it? Gary rigged it. And, you know, for those that, that don't know what that means, you know, Batman, the commissioner of the NHL, who's been there since 93. Gary after, Batman, yes. Yes. And he used to be the senior vice president and senior counsel for the NBA. So he already had sports background. And don't get me wrong, you got to give credit where credit is due. He did a lot to help grow this game from like a $400 million league into something that's worth multi-billions. But he's also helped expand the game into other areas it wouldn't normally be. So it, that ticks off all of the diehard 
you know, let's stick to what we know kind of thing. And he also oversaw not one, not two, but three work stoppages, plus a whole season being wiped out. It's never happened, really. You know, because he advocates so much for non-hockey markets, he gets a lot of flack from the true, I don't want to call them true diehards, but you know what I'm talking about, the fanatical hockey fans. So I made up that term simply based off of the situation. So I'm, I'm calling it Gary Rigg because you take the draft, for instance, you know, it was the same until 1994. Batman comes in it, and then 95, he made it so non-playoff teams weren't eligible for the draft lottery. Then he tweaked it again in 2013. Then he tweaked it again in 2015. Then again in 2020. And now again in 2022. So they keep adding more rules and changing things and changing the percentage and the odds and who can get in and who can't get in. And, you know, better or worse, I don't care. You decide. But you have that. You have the digital advertising, what I'm going to call a debacle. Sure, it's generating revenue. But I haven't met a single hockey fan that's watched the games and doesn't have a problem with seeing the dasher boards flash and make their players disappear when they're on the ice. I've heard plenty of people say, ah, it's no big deal. And Gary is one of those that says it's no big deal because he even went out and exclaimed in his State of the Union address that the polling we do with our fans gives us the feedback and it's a non-issue. And he said, many people think it looks better than having the numerous logos on the dasher boards. And it's working extraordinarily well. What polls are you doing? Is it the same polls and the same voting that the All-Star game was rigged about? Because I would believe that. Because there's nobody saying that. And especially there's not a majority of fans saying that. Now, I get it. The logos aren't going anywhere onto the jerseys because it generates revenue. They're not going anywhere off the helmets. They're certainly not going to go anywhere off the digital dashboards. But they do need to do something to fix it so they don't have all the glitches. Because there's a ton of it, and it's annoying. So, all that being said, here's All-Star Game. They have voting available on social media. It's evidently clear that they put more weight into the physical voting online than they did on the social media voting. It's clearly evident. Because... If you looked at how the players were trending going up into the vote, I mean, there were so many guys that are deserving to be in this game that were getting tons and tons and tons of votes on social media. But yet, in the end, they bring in people that I wouldn't have even thought about it. So, you know, I have a lot to say. And you're like, but DFG, you know, the All-Star Game's a giant waste of time and no one cares. And I absolutely respect that opinion because a lot of people share it. But the All-Star Game is a joke, people, and the All-Star Game doesn't matter, people. You know, the players hate it, which I even brought up. I don't think they hate it as much as a lot of them would like a week off. But, yeah, it's not tournament-level competition, which I like that because it gives the players a break. They don't have to go balls to the wall and play like that. Yeah, does it mean anything? Maybe not in the grand scheme of things. It's certainly not even up to a regular season-type tilt between – two middle-of-the-road teams that are just fighting to get a playoff spot. There aren't two points at stake. There aren't potential jobs on the line. No one's going to get fired if they don't show up and have a poor performance in the All-Star game. I get all that. But it's fun. It's fun for the fans. I think it's fun for a lot of the players. And to me, it's the game that's the human game. Because for every reason I've already said, players can finally breathe for a second. They can let their guards down. They can show you kind of that they're human beings and they're not some cliche spewing hockey machine. 
like we're used to them being. You know, their personalities can essentially just rise to the top, right? And it gives them that capability to have fun and joke around and talk freely and just be themselves. And I think that draws more fans in, especially younger fans that are more prone to watching 30-second clips on various social media or whatever of people doing different stuff. This gives them that showcase to be able to play to that, I think. And it's revenue. I mean, that's the other thing, too. It hasn't always been the revenue generated by the All-Star game was always always went to like the player um what is it like the retirement emergency assistance yeah fund. like the emergency assistant or retirement fund or whatever it is so it's revenue generating for a program that's really good and does a lot of good work for ex players as we all know and has been focused on a lot over the last few years you know mental health and physical health of players and things with CTE and all that kind of stuff it's popping up a lot as guys retire so they're going to need that extra medical care. So having something that can generate revenue for that, I think is great. So whether it's digital advertises or a PPG logo on a helmet, fine. Just don't let it be a distraction. That's the thing. And when they do stuff like this, it takes away from the event itself and puts everybody's focus on, oh, there's a conspiracy. There has to be because it's not you know, working out right. Because the whole world is cynical. It's degrading. It's harsh. It's crass. And that's proven by all the responses that fans have given over the event and how it was picked out. But, you know, the echo chamber on social media, you know, people yelling into the void, you know, it just creates this giant toxic environment. And I'm guilty of that myself a lot of times. So being able to find a way to break away from that seriousness and competitiveness and that intensity, is not only good for the players, it's good for the fans. It's like, relax. This is fun. Just have fun and enjoy it. You don't have to focus on winning all the time. You can have fun. You can just be a fan of the game because even though the game might not matter, that's why we need it. Well, I like how they changed the game to the three-on-three format. I think that was really the life that the All-Star game needed. We've talked about this way back in the past during the whole John Scott controversy where he was voted as one of the All-Star captains. Uh, but they changed it to a, th- a three-on-three format. Three-on-three, so you're going to have a lot of skating, a lot of shooting, a lot of scoring, maybe not as much hitting and rough stuff, and that's fine. So players aren't going to really get injured. They might get tired, but they're not going to get like hurt. This isn't like a five-on-five where somebody goes into the corner and then they get obliterated by a defenseman. No one plays defense. No, no. No one checks in the corners. I mean, other than the goofy few years ago when John Scott wanted to fight Patrick King, but they were just playing around. It was just goofy. So, you know, you don't see that kind of stuff. I think I've only ever seen one all-star game where it was in like the very end, the last period and guys were just going like full on skating. And that was years ago before the three on three. So, and I don't Hmm. remember what was at stake there. I don't know if it was like a million dollars went to the team or, or everybody got a truck, or I don't know what it was. It was something. Everybody but, gets a truck. But, like, <laughs> nobody played until the very end when it was like, oh, crap, we need to score seven goals because we're behind. By seven goals, right. Yeah, behind 14 to seven. So I'm reminded of what happened in 2007 with Rory Fitzpatrick when fans were trying to get him voted into That's the All-Star game. I remember that. You remember that? Yes. Vote for yeah. Rory. So uh, he was with the Canucks at the time. Basically, fans were trying to get him voted in as a starter. And what happened was fans were trying to get him voted in as a starter because 
the NHL was doing this, like, hey, you can vote and you can vote as much as you want. And they kind of wanted that, like, kind of stuffing the ballot box a little bit. Like, they were kind of trying to encourage that. But then when it was a guy who was having an average season, you know, good player, respectable defenseman, but he was having an average season that year, but he was in second place. So he would have been one of the two starting defensemen. Well, with like a week to go, the NHL magically finds all these votes for Nicholas Lidstrom that came in at the very end. So he ends up being the other Western Conference starter for defensemen. Because Fitzpatrick, if he was in first place, it would have been kind of hard to, to do anything about that. But because he was in second place and you vote for two defensemen, the NHL like found enough votes for Lidstrom to basically make it so that Fitzpatrick didn't finish second. However, the thing is, is that when you voted, when you filled out an all-star ballot, you couldn't just vote for your one guy and be done. You had to vote for all 12 starters. Right. So and that was where the controversy came in. Yes, because it was like, okay, Lidstrom has the this extra 200,000 or whatever votes. We'll just say 200,000. That's not the number, but just for argument's sake. So that and no one if, else has any. And no one else got the extra. Where did, right. okay, so if, if he got 200,000 votes, that means 11 other players also got or other players also got 200,000 votes that had to be kind of distributed somehow. It didn't add up. It didn't yeah, add up. It, so it's like they just found these votes. If I remember right, I think it boiled down to like 20,000 or 25,000 votes. Like that's Maybe. all it was. There was no competitive balance with any of the other votes. Mm-hmm. That's exactly it. It's kind of silly, but. Uh, right. Yeah. yeah. Oh, here, 23,000 votes. Yeah, so it wasn't 200,000. It was 23,000, so only 10% of that. But that's still quite a number. And it was such a debacle on voting and everything else. You know what he does now? He's a politician. Did you know that? He ran for office. Who did? Rory. Rory did. Yeah. Yeah, he's a politician now. So talk about voting fraud. (laughs) Right. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, he's a... I mean, he retired from everything else. Like, he operated, like, a restaurant and stuff for a while and... Did some things, so he got into politics a few years ago, and I think he's like a town superintendent or something like that. So it's low end politics, but it's an elected position nonetheless. So that's cool. So he got elected to something. Hey, all right. Well, there, I guess there is a happy ending. If you work hard enough, you too can succeed. Coyotes third jerseys. I'm surprised yeah. you brought that up when you're like, "Hey, let's talk about this," because I saw those. I love the Coyotes brick red jerseys i love that color scheme when they went with the brick red the black and that like sand color tan whatever love that to me that was peak coyote jersey right there everybody calls the kachina jersey the picasso jersey i call it the peyote jersey because it looks like you're on peyote when you look at that logo that seems like the kind of thing you'd hallucinate or the Picasso jersey is also an acceptable name for it, even though it's a Southwestern design and a native Kachina figure. But well, yeah. These jerseys have no logo on them. But they say Arizona, right? They have like a script A and then Arizona across the front. But they're that color. I have no problem with the color. And then they have that like kind of Native American pattern around the bottom, like the Southwestern mm-hmm. you know, kind of pattern. And on the sleeves as well. And when I first saw them, I'm like, these look like pajamas. Or 
they look like ugly Christmas sweaters, one or the other, because it's almost that same kind of design. But then I saw the players skating around with them on the ice. And I was like, wow, those actually kind of look sharp. Yeah, I thought they looked good. But then again, like I said, I'm more of a fan of that color. Like if they went back to their like 2006 designs or whatever, those mid 2000s to late 2000s, you know, you know, the Gretzky coaching era. That was peak Coyote jersey right there. Their their on-ice play was atrocious, but their jerseys were pretty sweet. Yeah, let's see how much more we can make this franchise a circus. Well, that, let's that, see. That's what that era was. Yeah, you know, it, it's funny that the Coyotes are the team that the NHL keeps propping up no matter what. No matter what. It's like nobody wants Cla- to own Clarify the team. that. That's Gary. Yeah. That's Gary. all directive of Gary. Because he yeah, can't actually, admit defeat, and he has to keep salvaging and saving. And that's fine. Go ahead and do it. I mean, well, I, I'd love to see them stay where they are. But it's like been one thing after the next, after the next, after the next. And any other team in any other market, he would have shut the door and sent them U-Haul. Yeah, the fact that the, that the league owned the team for a while because... Nobody wanted to buy the team, so they owned the team, and that's just ridiculous if you think about it. Like, somebody with deep pockets could have bought the team and moved it to, you know, Hamilton, Ontario, or gosh, you know, maybe uh, Houston or someplace, you know, maybe Quebec City, which would be funny that the Jets go to the desert and then they go to Quebec, you know, like the the whole franchise thing, which I, I don't like that term. Like... When they go, oh, he's the all-time franchise leader. It's like, you know what? I'm sorry. The people in Quebec really don't care about what the team in Colorado does. Maybe they do. Maybe they don't. Do the people who watch the Winnipeg Jets right now, do they really care about the Atlanta Thrashers era? Or are they more interested in the Jets 1.0? You know what I mean? You can take the quote-unquote franchise to another city. But I feel like when you leave the team, you got to leave that history behind. And it gets, it gets just, you know, oh, the all-time franchise leader. It's just like, who cares? I think it's hard to do that, though, because if you do that, you basically bury the team. And so the only person or the only people that are going to know about it are those that collect hockey cards or are students of the game that go back historically and look. Mm-hmm. You know, when you hear that and they say, you know, if it's a younger or newer fan watching and they say, oh, you know, the all-time franchise leader – and it shows like the name of the player or something, and it shows that they played on a different team, and you're thinking, wait a minute, is that a typo on the screen? Who is this team? Might cause you to go and try to find out. So it might be a teaching lesson. I don't know. Yeah, it just seems kind of... To us, it seems kind of silly, but... Right. Whatever. Uh, You want to talk about the serious XM contract with the NHL? Yeah, the NHL re-upped their... I mean, there's not much to it other than that. They re-upped their contract with Sirius XM to have XM NHL radio on Sirius XM. So something I've listened to, I don't want to say every day, but at least four out of five days during the week. You know, I might commute to work and commute home, and I have it on in my office. And there's a very lively cast of characters on most of the shows that they broadcast throughout the day on there. And it'll be nice to see them get an opportunity to continue and grow the game through that uh, media source, which is cool. They also announced that all of the all of the guys get to go to the All Star game and do like reporting and stuff. 
oh, which is good. cool because they haven't done that in a very long time. So that'll be kind of cool. Yeah. So hockey cards. Sure. Uh, I like I like them. Is that all? Yeah, I like them too. All right, okay. that's the show, everyone. Thanks for listening. Wrap no, it up. Yeah, exactly. No, so SP Game Used. 2021-22 SP Game Used Embroidered. So Embroidered is a, what, a, an insert set in that or something? Yeah, it's a manufactured patch set that was inserted into uh, the product. And So wait, hold on. It's called SP Game Used, which implies... I suppose... But you they're putting manufactured patches in a product called SP Game Used. This is just one set in the mix of them. But the idea behind it is more or less, I don't know what you would call it, like a nickname set, maybe? Okay. I mean, it's kind of cool. Top sort of did something like this in baseball a few years back. But it's done a little differently. So you have various players. Most of the set, I think there's 100 cards in there. You got 50, I want to say it's like 50 base players, like current players. There's 25 legends and 25 rookies. You said base players and I got excited. I'm like, oh, is Les Claypool in that set? Yeah, there's there's uh, 50 base players. They've got them all. Three listeners of our show who knows who Primus is, yeah. They got Getty Lee on there. They got Pete Way. They got Nikki Six. They've got uh, Lemmy. I mean, you name it, they're on that list. Gotta have Flea. Flea's on there, yep. Uh, Victor <laughs> Victor Wooten. I mean, base, you name base, it. Base players, um, right. Yeah, okay, sorry. Yeah, I, I couldn't think Bad of the joke. word, like veterans. Veterans. Yeah, base cards, I get it. Yeah. They, they say base veterans is what they usually call it. Like 50 base veterans and short printed rookies and whatnot. All of the cards, like the patches have something to do with like a player nickname or something about the team or or something specific like that. And as we all know, the great Eddie Belfour was known as... The Eagle. The Eagle, right? And Mark Messier, another Hall of Famer, had the nickname of Moose. Well, turns out that the patches for Eagle and Moose were flip-flopped. So the eagle is on Messier card, and Moose is on the Belfort card. Wow! So I didn't see any other ones like that yet, so I don't know if that was you know something else. But yeah, apparently there was a screw up with the uh, I don't know if it was the pack out or the printer or something like that. But uh, I guess it wouldn't be the pack out; it would have been the printer, since the pack out people just stuff the boxes. Yeah, so. There's both of those floating around all over the place. You can find them on on eBay, and they're funny to look at because you see Moose on a Belfort card, and you're like, what? Did he play for the Manitoba Moose? What is this card? And then you realize, oh, wait, the Messier card says Eagle on it. Well, now, Johan Hedberg would also be an acceptable use of Moose. Correct, and that's immediately what I thought when I saw it. But then I'm like, I doubt they would put Hedberg in a checklist. And sure enough, he's not, of course. But no. uh, I also thought some other ones were kind of weird, too. Like, John Gibson said Rocket Man. And I'm like, I get what that is. But it turns out, you know, the NHL does those, like, little snippets with, like, interviews with players and asks some silly questions and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And there was one a while back that was, if you could change your first name, what would you change it to? 
and people were given all sorts of answers and john gibson's answer was rocket man so instead of john gibson it would be rocket man gibson so i'm pretty sure that's where that came from wow so you have to like know this one joke that aired on an episode of nhl now like six months ago honestly i haven't i mean i don't know that i recall anybody ever calling him that so that's why i was confused and there was conversation on twitter about it and then when i found it i'm like oh so yeah yeah but it's interesting it's just a just a screw up not faulting him it's just a funny one that was kind of created now i thought this was interesting is that 2223 artifacts came out recently and you mentioned that sebastian aho is on the box yeah i was the uh, cover boy on the box which is great but then he's not in the base set so yeah not not in the base set and if you look at the totality of the checklist he's only got two cards the whole checklist that i could find he might have a parallel or something somewhere but all i saw was the clear-cut rookie retro card and a tundra tandrum or tundra teammate dual card with marty natchez that was it that's the only place he showed up on the checklist that's one thing i found interesting but i will say this yes it did come out four cards per pack eight packs per box so typical artifacts configuration that we've seen for quite a long time they promised three hits and one rookie and four numbered parallels that's kind of been the same also they don't make mention that the arm cards are necessarily a hit Ugh. however they say the hits are relics autographs or what they're calling tech inserts Ugh. so if arm is included in the tech inserts then yes that's one of your hits um from what i could find on the checklist the tech inserts are special printing technology that they used on some parallel cards so some of them have wood grain, like actual wood grain on the sides. And it sort of just looks brown, and you probably wouldn't notice it unless you ran your fingers across it. Oh, that's yep. weird. They also have a leather one, same thing. It's got a leathery finish, kind of like what they did with Ingrained a couple years ago. Oh, that, uh, that insert set that was like the thick wood cards? Yeah, that was actually a, it was a full set by itself. It was released in packs. Because I have an ingrained card of Chris Chelios, and yeah. it's pretty freaking cool. Yeah, so they it's like that. And then there's also plexi ones, which I can only assume are on the plexiglass, kind of like the uh, trilogy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the trilogy cards were always with the, mm-hmm. uh, what were they called? Like showstoppers or something like that. Yeah, even though this came out, basically it came out today as we're recording this. Mm-hmm. I've watched two case breaks on this and a single box break. Guess how many autos? Well, they're supposed to be one per box. Well, they could, could be one per Could box. be one per box. Two cases and one box. How many autos? So how many boxes in a case? I guess that's the first question I did need to ask. 20. Oh, that many. It's probably an auto in every other box. That would be my first guess. Just I want it to be one per box because... To me, an autograph is always a selling point. And when you don't get an autographed card in a high-end or a higher-end set, I always found that disappointing. Like, oh, I got another jersey card. Great. You know, or, oh, I got this 
tech insert of a player I don't necessarily collect, right? But if it's an autograph, even if it's a player that I don't collect, it's still an autograph. So my guess is one in every other box. And that would be a reasonable guess, but zero is the answer. Zero what? Zero autographs. Two cases and an extra box. Zero autographs. So out of 41 boxes that you watch get broken on YouTube or whatever. By three different breakers. No. Not a single auto. So there's no autographs, basically. Well, there are. But the autograph hits obviously aren't falling anywhere close That's a to pretty what big people sample. are assuming. And it is. And if you look at the checklist, they're in there. I mean, look, Artifacts has always been that set where it's Artifacts. That's what it is. It should have game use pieces and it should have pieces of glove and pants and sticks and buttons and all of that kind of stuff. And it has traditionally. Yeah, but it hasn't really been focused. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Autofacts. That's exactly what I was getting at. And, you know, a couple years they started sticking sticker autos on the dual jersey cards to make them dual jersey auto cards. Kind of like they did with... uh, that's the most recent one that they did that. Allure. They did that to Allure. But they used to do that to Artifacts years ago. So, yeah, a lot of people are not really happy about that. I don't buy Artifacts looking for autos. I never have. But I think if the auto hits are going to come at such a low rate, I think they got to drop that price point. Otherwise, people are going to really sour on it quickly. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I understand that getting autographs was kind of hard during the pandemic because you had to mail people stuff. You had to get it back. Things had to be signed in front of a witness. That's hard to do with social distancing, et cetera. You had the bubble league and this and that. But I mean, now we're 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 a couple years past that now, right? I mean, three well, years we are, ago. But you got to remember, this is 2223 artifacts, which means an artifacts is always a first of the year product. Right. So so that means the design for this was going down a year ago. True. Which means a year ago, the photos that they had to choose from were from either the first part of 21-22 or the 2021 season. Right. So most of the cards you get of players currently, if they were traded in the last two years, they may be on their old jersey. Probably. But I because guess it's I'm... a first product, so you got to float that time frame around to kind of fit the narrative a little bit from the manufacturer standpoint. I don't think we should be in this position, but for a reasoning standpoint, that would probably be the best reasoning. So I guess what I'm getting after is autographs are really just becoming that much harder to get now. And oh, absolutely. in a product, I mean, like, and I, to me, that's always a selling point. The, Jersey patch stuff. You know what? When I got back into collecting, like really got back into collecting in 2006, I had absolutely no use for Jersey cards. To me, they were a waste of time. They were filler. I thought they inflated the value. I'd look at a product like Upper Deck Series 1, and back then you'd get like three Jersey cards per box. And I'd say, these just inflate the price of the box, get rid of them, make the box cheaper. I want the base cards. I want the young guns. Maybe I want some of the inserts, but I didn't want the jersey cards. So to me, they just became something that, quote unquote, added value to the product, but also inflated the cost of the product because you had to buy the jerseys. Upper Deck had to buy the jerseys to cut up and put in the product. I get that. Now, 
you look at like Upper Deck Series 1, Series 2, Extended Series, you might get a jersey card. But regardless, the price is still high. It's like you probably won't get a jersey card, but the price is still kind of up there. I mean, it's higher than what it was back then. I get it. Things go up in price. But now I kind of feel like with all these third jerseys, reverse retro jerseys, you have players changing jerseys every other shift. Well, maybe not really, but a game-used jersey now is not the same as a game-used jersey from 30 years ago. Who do you think had more jerseys in their career, Mario or Sydney? I mean, the obvious answer is Sydney because through most of the 80s, I think most players only had like two or three jerseys. Yeah, yeah. They just I washed mean, them and gave them back to them. Yeah, they'd usually get one or two home jerseys and one or two road jerseys, and that was it, you know? And you'd have guys get traded, and they'd pull up the name off the jersey and put another name on the jersey you had that sort of thing right so to me it's like you could say oh it's a piece of a Sidney crosby jersey and therefore this card is more valuable but it's like crosby wears a lot of jerseys he does you know what i mean there's no shortage of Sidney crosby jerseys to be cut up and used for memorabilia cards and i'm, I'm talking about game worn jerseys game used jerseys don't even get me started on that event worn nonsense that most uh, card companies don't even don't even touch that anymore. They they don't even do that because, or if they do, they really just kind of say, you know, uh, it's it's a uh, what do they call it? They don't say event used. Well, they say a manufactured jersey piece or whatever. Here's the only thing I would say to that. Yeah, I think Upper Deck does a good job of striving to a try to eliminate redemptions and stuff their product with. You know the actual cards right. when they can artifacts has always had a redemption as part of its box that's right. always been part of the whole thing because you get this product so early we don't know who those rookies are going to be so we're going to pick them later i will say this the one single box i saw open they pulled a redemption for the uh, rookie retro number one pick mm. so that's going to be obviously slavkovsky i would assume that was a pretty good one, and I can forgive the autographs just based off of that. But, again, we're talking about artifacts. Artifacts is artifacts. I don't necessarily consider an autograph an artifact. An no. artifact is more something you know tangible that you can touch. Yeah. So parts of the uniforms or sticks or, what, or equipment or whatever, I think that's the draw to this product, and it always has been the draw to the product. You're right. Prices keep going up. The cost of buying this stuff on the secondary market is going up. Just look at how sports memorabilia has been. Look at what the card market's done. People are bonzo about this stuff. And yeah, sure, you look at some of the other sports, cards have lost value, lost value, quote unquote, as if they had value in the beginning. And people are taking a bath on what they spent on investing, quote unquote, in all of these cards. It hasn't really hit hockey. I don't know that it actually will. Yeah, we have our ups and downs with certain players when they do really good and outperform their contracts and do crazy stuff, a la Tage Thompson, who nobody cared about last season. But, right. you know, you have those situations that are kind of one-offs. But I think Upper Deck does a good job of trying to get those game-worn pieces into their product. Because if you read most of them, they say on the back, this was a game-used piece. They don't do a lot of the event stuff, but when they do, you already know about it. Especially like with SP Game Used, where they have all the all-star skills 
stuff, most of those are event use because you get pieces of banners and all sorts of stuff because they have so many other things that they can pick up and buy that are memorabilia pieces versus buying the actual jersey, like you said. You know, there might be a bigger supply of them now, but I think the prices have all gone up. I'm just glad they haven't gone the route of Panini, where on the back of their cars, they say something to the effect of, this is not associated with any particular game, event, player, or anything else. So you just have a piece of something. You don't know where it came from. It could have been the tablecloth from the guy that actually put the card together. You don't know. Could be a piece of his sock. You don't know. That's what I was thinking of. This The piece of memorabilia is not associated with any team, player, or game. And I have seen that, and I think that's ridiculous. Like, why cut up a jersey and put it on a card? I can understand people saying, oh, this is a piece of a jersey that Sidney Crosby or Alexei Lafreniere or Ryan Suter or Patrick Kane or whomever, right? Like, you could say, okay, I like this player and this is a piece of jersey that they wore. All right, whatever. I mean, I think it's silly to cut up a jersey, but I do collect some jersey cards, mainly of the players that I like. But, uh, but that's, yeah. But that's been Panini's thing for a very long time. And I even saw recently somebody posted that they took a Panini card and decided to cut it up. And they pulled the jersey swatch out of it. And the sticker, it's on the back of the jersey swatch, was not the sticker identifying the player in the card that you would assume that it's supposed to be of. Mm -hmm. It had a completely different player's name tagged on the back. Mm. And most of the swatch pieces, if you've seen cards tore apart on the square, if you flip them over on the back, most of them have labels that show the player's name. Mm. I might have this one at a completely different player. And it's like, okay, do you have an issue with the manufacturer then because they're frauding you out of something? Well, no, because if you flip it over and look on the back, it said this may not be the player or from an event or from a game or basically anything. So, yeah, you got a jersey piece. It's not from this guy. It's from this other guy. But you would have never known that until you tore the card up. So, so I might have to volunteer one of my cards, put it in the the old bagel slicer, and cut it in half and split it in half and see see what the jersey piece says, because now I mean, I'm intrigued. Yeah, and I took a Tom Pody jersey card apart. I think it was like a 05, 06 Upper Deck Game jersey card. Now, why would you do that to U.S. Olympic player Tom Pody? Because oh, I had seven of them. 19... 98 u.s olympic team that i think finished seventh yeah because i had a, i had seven of them okay and it's a franken card that had him in a rangers jersey and it said toronto maple leafs across the bottom and the patch piece that's in it was black so hmm. i don't know where that came from or what was going on so i cut it up just to see and it's an upper deck card it didn't have anything on the back of the swatch it was just a piece of thing but mm-hmm. I know all the ones I've seen of Panini, they have a player label on the back. So I don't know if Upper Duck does that too, but the ones I saw have not. But like I said, back to my original point, I think they try to get this stuff in the product, which pushes the price up a little bit, just to have this variety and have all these extra things and stuff that maybe you or I aren't interested in, but there might be somebody else out there that's willing to drop more money than we are to get some of those things, like a flip-flop manufacturer patch of... Mark Messier that says Eagle. All right, let's talk about 21-22 Skybox Metal Universe. In one show, we're basically talking about cards from this year and cards from 
last year. So I was a big fan of the 2021 Skybox Metal Universe set. And I know we did a show about that. And then a couple shows back, we did a preview of 2122 Skybox Metal Universe. And I got a box. I like it. I'm going to build the set. Just to give you a quick overview, a hobby box was pre-selling at 150 Now that price is down to about 140 So it's trending in the right direction, if you ask me. Because, you know, when you had the 2021 boxes that were pre-selling at almost $300, nope, not interested. Did not even get close to buying one of those. And the after 50- you run through the stats, I'll tell you why it's dropping in price. Okay. You get 15 packs per box, 7 cards per pack. There are 100 base cards to collect. Those are of the veteran players. Then there's 100 short prints, 50 alternate jersey cards of the veteran players, but wearing a different jersey, like maybe an all-star jersey, maybe a third jersey, or some sort of other jersey that they're not pictured on on their normal base card. And then there's 50 rookies. And, you know, I'll talk more about the design itself, but now I'm intrigued. Why did the price go down a bit? Well, you brought up those alternate jersey cards. Yep. Remember the previous Metal Universe that those alternate jersey cards were all all-star cards. Correct, and I, I liked that. They had no all-star game to take pictures for this product, mm-hmm. which is why they're all third jerseys or alternate jerseys or reverse retros or whatever. That's why they didn't use all-star game jerseys. But to get to the bigger point, and this is just my theory, because what happens time and time again when a new product drops? Oh, The breakers uh... go crazy. And there's case breaks all over the place and cases upon cases upon cases of everything that was pre-ordered being busted and opened within the first hours if not hundreds and hundreds of cases in the first few days of being out there well i believe if i'm not mistaken it was three maybe four hours on the day of release that the gold retro cole caulfield pmg was pulled and put online like the product's live for a couple hours. And the biggest card in the entire shebang is pulled and put up for auction. So what does that say to people going out and collecting, looking for that, you know, my ship has come in card? It's gone already. You can't get it. Now, there's other good cards. There's lots of good cards in there. I mean, heck, those green PMGs are pretty cool looking. But... The number one card in the entire set was pulled within hours of the product release. I mean, I'm no mathematician, but to me, that would be a telltale sign that the price is about to drop. Well, because Because every big card you take off the list, total value comes down. Merely speculating, but that's my theory. It's still a good product. There's good stuff in there. You can hit some good stuff. But there's other PMG golds in the set. It's not just Caulfield. And honestly, I would probably want Trevor Zegris, even though you said he's just a one-trick pony. I'm quoting you. Well, I mean... I think that was a specific quote from the DFG. It may have been. I don't know. I don't don't know. (laughs) No, we were talking about who should be Rookie of the Year. And actually, what you said was, Zegris had a really nice goal, is what you said. And I thought about it and go... Yeah, that makes sense. He had a really nice goal. 
He did. But yeah, said a few of them. I mean, look, he's on the cover or he shares the cover of NHL 23, and I think that's awesome that they went to a younger, hipper player, somebody of the TikTok generation. But uh, I mean, I could you get. You know it, what like, the issue is, though, right? Hmm. He plays for the Ducks. Cole Caulfield's on the Habs. Right there, yeah. you've multiplied your fan base by three thousand. Yes. So yes, that's true. Whether you agree with it or not, or you like one player better than the other, you can't argue that that Caulfield card would be more desirable than the Zegers one. And if you put yeah. them back to back and tried to sell them at auction and just let it go. There's no doubt in my mind that the Cole Caulfield would outperform a Zegris of the same ilk. Like yeah. Probably tenfold at least. Yeah. And even though more Cider won rookie of the year, people are not as excited about his cards because he's a defenseman and he's a defenseman on not a great team right now. Yeah. It's original 16, but they've been, I mean, let's face it. They've been essentially trash for the average viewer. Nobody wants to watch that. Fans yeah. like it, not like losing, but fans still enjoy watching the team. And I think he's, if a player could win rookie of the year and still be considered underrated, I'd slap that title on him. I mean, you look at Kale McCarr, offensive defenseman. Now I'm trying to think like defensemen are just such a tough sell when it comes to collecting. I mean, I, I try to think they of like have been. defensemen who are like religiously collected. Bobby Orr. And it's, anyone that you name off is going to be an offensive defenseman. Yep, exactly. Because stay-at-home defensemen get no love at all. And fourth liners and third liner guys, they get no love. Right. So, you know, when you have defensive pairings that have potential Hall of Famers, they're not potential Hall of Famers because they just fall on the ground and block shots all the time. Mm-hmm. They're defensive Hall of Famers because not only can they remove you from the puck and put pressure and keep you out of their end, but they can also chip in and score. So you're right. I mean, Bobby Orr and dot, dot, dot could maybe continue that and even further because you're going to fall down to the rest of like maybe the Hall of Fame players. But even then, very underrated. So getting back to Skybox Metal Universe. So the cards kind of have that old school black diamond look to them where they're like etched in foil. But they have a cosmic background, you know, like stars, planets. Looks like everybody's skating in front of some sort of nebula or something. I was a big fan of these cards in the 90s when they were originally out. I was super excited when they came back out last year. Probably my only sticking point is probably the price point being a little high. But that's just kind of how things are right now. Just to go over some of the inserts. So, okay, so you got your 100 base cards. You got your 100 short prints. Oh, and by the way, and I'll, I'll put a picture of this, but we talk about alternate jersey cards. And so I have a Brent Burns card, and he's wearing a gray Sharks jersey. But then I have the alternate jersey Brent Burns card, and he's also wearing a gray jersey. He's just in a slightly different pose. So I don't know how really alternate it is. It's more of just an alternate photo than an alternate sweater. Anyway, so some of the insert sets, you got the Jambalaya inserts, which frankly, I'm not a fan of. I, I always think the design is ugly. It's just color chaos. But yay, you know what? Whatever. People like them. They're pretty hard to pull. So that's kind of why they're, I guess, they're so popular. I mean, I'm sure there's another reason that you'll enlighten me with 
in a minute because I don't think I've ever pulled a Jambalaya card. I don't think I've ever seen one from the 90s if they were even around back then. Um, yeah, they were. They're just rare. They're hard to hit. Yeah. They don't pop up very often. And, you know, when they do, they go for big bucks. There's Big Man on the Ice, which are die-cut cards that also have, like, shiny foil for some of the letters. So those are kind of neat. There's, of course, the retro inserts. They call them 97-98 design, but I think they're referring to 97-98 basketball. 96-97 is when they use this particular type of design in hockey. Although with 96-97, that was the set that had the flying eyeballs and the giant plants and the nuclear explosions and the atoms and all all the real crazy stuff. You can get an autograph. I pulled the Tim Stutzla autograph. It is a sticker autograph, but that's fine. It's kind of a shiny sticker, so it kind of looks nice on the shiny card. A couple other I call him Shiloh. Shiloh? Is that what they that's call what, it? That's what I call him, because every time I see his signature, it looks like it says Shiloh. It does. Yeah. Shiloh. Or Shiloh, yeah. You can Pre- call it whatever you want. I call him Shiloh. Premium prospects, which, eh, I don't really care for these. They almost remind me of like a Pinnacle-type card set from the 2012 era. You know what I mean? Where it's just like, eh, it's just a design. It's not a foil card. I think that's what threw me off about this, is that they said, hey, let's have some non-foil cards in a foil card set, which doesn't make any sense to me. You know, like, let's just make these normal cards that... Look like they could be inserts in anything. There's got autograph am- versions of those too. Oh, I believe it. You got amped up. You got championship galaxy metal like, uh, metallics. As as, is it? Yeah, as much as I didn't like the amped up, I kind of like the amped up now. All right, so you're gonna be collecting them? I don't know. Maybe it's a guitar amp in the background. I kind of have to. You got a guitar amp, and then you got these guitar picks, which are made of plastic. Ah, uh, yes, the picks. The picks. So the pick ones? Yes. Here's an interesting thing. You don't generally see picks like that. They do make them. We call them nachos because they look like a Dorito with the pointed edges. But you generally will find the picks like the traditional style pick with the rounded corners. All three corners are rounded. Mm -hmm. This one, only the bottom corner is rounded. Right. Because they wanted more die cut into the product but less expense. And cutting that card... To round the corners off would have cost a lot more. So that's why they went with that. So what you're saying is that they cut corners by not cutting corners. Exactly. For printing, you have to have like a full edge on this side and do this mm-hmm. and do this. And every cut costs you something. Right. So, But it's funny when, you know, these came out, I think it was a day later, I saw it floating around on social media and I can't find it again. So if somebody out there knows where this is, by all means, send it to us. But there was a video of a guy taking one of these and using it to play his guitar. No way. And I can't find it. Like, I saw it once, I laughed, and then it's gone. So if anybody could find that, I'd be grateful. There's another die-cut set called The Cheddar, which has a player superimposed on a wedge of cheese. So this is based on the saying, top cheese or top cheddar which refers to when a player shoots the puck right below the crossbar. I guess that's also saying top shelf. Hockey has too many ways of saying the same thing. It does. 
So if you remember back when we had Billy Celio on the show mm-hmm. and we asked him about card designs and stuff and where he mm-hmm. comes up with names, I don't know if you remember him saying that sometimes he just sits there and ponders all sorts of hockey slang until he comes up with something that makes sense. So all I can think of is that's probably what happened here. He was thinking of things and there it went. Yeah. I would have liked the cheese or I would have liked big cheese. I think the big cheese would have been kind of funny. Um, Yeah, but big cheese. I mean, cheddar has like all stars if you look at the checklist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The big cheese would have to be like a bigger size card. Like remember those triangle cards from Crown Royale from Pacific back in the day? Oh, like Kramer's Choice? The Kramer's Choice cards. They would have to be that size and have like just the top 10 best players. Because that would be the... That'd be the big cheese. I have a Kramer's Choice card floating around. I don't know where I have it. It's a big card, so it could either be with my other big cards or it might be in a binder with a set or something. I've got a Yager one in hockey, and I also have, I believe I have a Heinz Ward one in football. Mm. I think I got Patrick Waugh, and I think I bought that at a card shop. It's a good one to have. Yeah, I can't go wrong with Sir Patrick couple of the other inserts so you got the planet metal got championship galaxy so the one championship galaxy card i pulled i was thinking all right it's evgeny malkin he's gonna talk about his championship season when he was mvp i mean i know he's a three-time cup winner but he was also the con smite winner in what year did the uh, penguins win the uh cup where malkin was the uh con smite winner oh nine so um this card doesn't talk about that. It's called Championship Galaxy, but it has nothing to do with this championship. Then there's, uh, what's this other one? It's like Planet Metal. It's kind of like a shiny holofoil. So I'll accept that as well. Die cuts, holofoil, etched metal. That's all great. These premium prospects, which just look like regular cards, which is a foil stamped logo. Yeah, looks like something you could get an upper deck. But then there's another. Yeah, that's stuff. the glass of water when you're binge drinking. I don't want that, man. If I'm if I'm paying 150 bucks a box, I want all shots, and I want all shots of the good stuff. I don't want you'll the ne- I don't want the chaser. You'll never get to the last pack if you don't have at least one bottle of water. No, what's the bottle of water? Is the pack of all base cards? Yeah, depressing. The one bottle of water. That's the intermission. They call that the intermission. Interesting. So talk about this pitter-patter set, because I didn't know about it. It just kind of flew under my radar until you pointed it out to me, and I think it's a really interesting set. Yeah, those that are fans of the enforcer-slash-goon-slash-pest-type players, this is one of those sets for you, because the entire checklist is those type of players. Pitter-patter is a phrase that is ripped directly from Letterkenny. So those not familiar with Letterkenny, it's a... show about i mean i don't even know how to describe it it's a show about this town in canada and you got different groups of people like you got like the townie people and you got like the burnout people and you you got like the trashy people and there's like this mix of all these different people one of the characters that's on there his name's wayne and he always wears flannel shirts and this is one phrase that he says all the time is pitter-patter, let's get at her. And so this is yanked from there. But why that's hockey-related, a big part of the show is focused around playing hockey and the hockey team and all that kind of stuff. So Yeah, pitter-patter, let's get at her. So 
Letter Kenny, if I had to describe it to a friend who had never seen it, it seems to me like it's a show about people who live in a small town and just try not to be bored. Because it starts out, it says there are 5,000 people in Letterkenny. These are their problems. That's how every show starts, right? Your main protagonists are like the farmers or the hicks, as they refer to them in the show, right? You got your farmers. Yeah. Then you have think your, of how they divided them up. Then you have like the burnouts who are like the druggies slash break dancers that are always just kind of hanging out, dancing and doing drugs. And they're like the burnouts. And then you have like these two guys who are like local hockey players in the show. They're playing for the local junior team, but then eventually they graduate to, to senior a hockey. I mean, they're not pros, but they they're like playing senior hockey. So like you have like a couple of hockey playing guys, you have a couple of farmers and you have a couple of like, breakdancing slash drug head, whatever, right? And so, you know, the groups kind of get along and they're kind of at odds with each other, but they also kind of get along. I mean, it's kind of a comedy. And you showed me that card and go, oh yeah, that's supposed to be Wayne's flannel shirt. And I thought that was pretty Yeah, the design on it clever. is his flannel shirt because that's all he wears, it seems like. Because he's yeah. a farmer. I mean, that's what farmers wear. And then I know like later on in Letterkenny, they get more and more involved in this like one story arc with like a hockey tournament i don't know if you've ever watched the show i've watched a few episodes i have not like binged seasons because it takes a minute yeah this is one of those shows that takes a minute if you're not familiar with the vernacular and that culture it it takes a minute Mm. to get into it i'm not downplaying the show it's pretty funny then they had a spin-off series called shorzy which was a minor character in the show who you never saw his face because he was played by the same guy who plays Wayne. So that was kind of the thing. You never saw Shorzy. He was either you'd see his back or he'd wear a tinted visor because he was that kind of douchey hockey player or he'd be off camera making fun of like the other characters. And so they spun him off into his own show. I have thoughts about that, but that's not something I want to get into right now because it's not every day you get a series about hockey. And yet last year we got Mighty Ducks Game Breakers and we got Shorzy. So we actually had two very different shows targeted to very different audiences, but they were both hockey shows. So you don't see that too often. So anyway, yeah, Pitter Patter that focuses on enforcer type players or pest type players because Wayne is known as, like, being the toughest guy in the town of Letterkenny. Like, one of yeah, the early I, story arcs is him getting into fist fights to yep. kind of prove how tough he is. I think I saw is. three episodes, and he got fights in all three of them. Well, and I'll, I will say this. I did not like Letterkenny. First episode, I was just like, yeah, this is okay. Second episode, I was like, yeah, this is kind of dumb. Third episode, I had to turn it off. I'm like, this is stupid. I went on Facebook, and I said, this show is stupid. And then the people who didn't make fun of me said it really hits its stride by the end of the first season. And then they were right. It really hit its stride by the end of the first season. I'm like, okay, I get this show. I get this character. It's kind of like the show kind of had to figure out we're a comedy, but not like a slapstick comedy. We're kind of like more of a dry humor kind of comedy with like a little bit of drama, but nothing too heavy or too serious kind of light. But Wow, that was quite the tangent. I think we talked about... It's not really a tangent because it's what the card's based off of. I know, but I didn't get into, like, all the cheese recipes from, like, this cheddar insert of Trevor's Egress going top cheese. 
I'll tell you the one the one insert that I think is probably the pinnacle of all of them is the Metallics cards, or as some people have been calling a Metal X. I believe it's Metallics. They look outstanding. They're beautiful looking cards, but they fall one per case, so they're really yeah. tough. And everybody's going to be trying to chase them at some point, which means those that are trying to go after the big guns like McDavid or something. Based off of the checklist, I mean, that's one per 70 cases. So, I mean, you do the math. That's a lot. So these are going to be very rare. They're already selling for a chunk of change out there. They fall one per case, but the odds of getting the McDavid would be like one out of 70. They're just really tough pulls at one per case. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole checklist of them, but they're tough. And honestly, they've been selling for... Some of them hundreds. Honestly, I think they might be they might be too low right now, if you could believe that, considering how hard they are to pull. But they look great. They look awesome. I think it's the best looking design I've seen in a while. I think what it is is I think with like the Metal Universe, people really fixate on the uh, PMG cards and then kind of everything else kind of like, I don't want to say falls to the side, but that kind of seems to be like the it chase card. Yeah, I mean, sense. everybody goes after those because they have the history of being the card. I mean, mm-hmm. look at the Michael Jordan PMGs from way back when. Yeah, those I were know. super premium cards, and they were rare. And a lot of times people didn't even realize what they had. Oh, wow, this is a shiny card, and it goes in a box, not realizing how rare they actually are. But the nice thing about this set is it's so jam-packed full of inserts, you don't have to focus on just the PMGs. There's something in here that I think anybody would probably enjoy to look at and go after and like you said there's so much foil and die cut I mean, they're die cut and foiling us to death with the set which is fine because the good thing is take a look at almost all their other sets versus these and look at all the inserts and the parallels mm-hmm. there really aren't any go down the list the only parallels that there are for any of the insert sets are either a gold or a spectrum that's it mm-hmm. there isn't blue and blue cubes and red and red prism and yellow taxi and all that other stuff there isn't a hundred different versions there's just one and i like that yeah that's one thing i said in my uh, my write-up about the set is that i like the variety i like that there's different insert sets uh and that they're interesting insert sets and like i said whenever you do any sort of die cutting you do any sort of foiling you do any sort of Anything out of the norm, or in the case of the picks, the plastic cards, it's more appealing to me. You know what I mean? Like, I probably won't really chase any of these insert sets, but, you know, I mean, of course, I'll chase after the players that I like, and I'm going to build the base set, and I'm going to build the uh, short prints, and I'll probably try to chase down all the retros, just because that's really what I like. You collect what you like and what you're into, so some people might like these amped up inserts. I think they're just okay. But, you know, that's that's fine. I mean, the fact that this set is such a creative set, I'm glad that it's around, and I hope that they continue to put it out because it's such a fun throwback 90s set. You know, it's kind of like what I wanted. Maybe not the same thing, but remember Full Force? Yeah, I do. I wanted Full Force to be more like this, and I know Full Force actually had some interesting inserts and some die cuts, but... I thought that like Full Force was going to be like that kind of goofy 90s-esque retro kind of set, and it wasn't. But this is. 
Well, you at least get your wish for twenty two, twenty three, because they are making that they that they already sent the the cell sheets and everything out for those. Are, are they coming out this decade or? <laughs> yeah, well, you can't really speak to that, but I can tell you they are. If you if you look up with the design and what the base cards look like, they're interesting. They're definitely interesting. They remind me of the old um, what was it score. Was it Zenith? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it might have been Zenith, the one year where they had the base card, the gray, the metal, and the silver, and they all looked alike. But it reminds me of that design, like it's like a mesh. But yeah, it's got all the same kind of stuff. You know, the the jambalaya's back. The you know, there's a few other few other interesting insert sets like. The metallics they brought back, but Lynchpins is one of them. All-Starring, which I'm assuming is based off of All-Star players. You know, there's Bottle Rockets and Cache and your favorite, the Prospect cards, which mm. will at least get Owen Power and stuff like that in, in that checklist. But they brought in a, for next year's, or it'll be this year's because we're dealing with last year's. <laughs> so when that comes out, they actually brought in uh, artists to do illustrations. Ooh. So they look like the old Fleer Retro Marvel illustration cards. Nice. So those will be interesting when they hit. Yeah, but those are now but, we're talking about next yeah. year. And so. we don't know when that's going to come out, but it's out there. So we'll at least get this product for one more year. I don't mm-hmm. think they're going to make it go away. It's pretty popular. Yeah. And to the detractors out there that are like, well, I didn't get any autographs. And autographs are too hard to pull and all of that kind of stuff. Well, if you wanted more autographs, the price point would be higher. So there's that. That's a good can't, point. Can't have it both ways. So I think with the amount of inserts in there and the potential that's some really cool stuff, although you can't get the gold PMG Caulfield, I think it's still worthwhile where its price point is right now. Wow, look at the time. It has flown. Time flies when you're having fun. Yeah, and this was fun. Oh, hey, you know what, folks? I want to mention that we have a YouTube channel. Of course, it's Puck Junk, so youtube.com slash Puck Junk. You should come check that out. You know, we do post this podcast to YouTube, but I am going to be ramping up our videos a little bit on that in the coming weeks. I'm probably going to start doing video pack breaks again and stuff like that also on tiktok at buck junk and then of course we're on twitter tim's at the real dfg and i'm at buck junk and then also we have a facebook collectors group so that's facebook.com slash puck junk and that's it thank you for listening to the podcast and until next time collect what you like For more hockey goodness, follow us on Twitter at PuckJunk.